BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Have we reached the point? I think we have. Where it is absolutely like essential for the survival of the United States and, frankly, the world. I mean, we're talking about everything from global warming to international relations to avoiding World War III to avoiding another Second Great Depression. I mean, is it time now for even the Republicans, obviously it's time, but I mean, you know, will they pick it up for even the Republicans to say, you know, this guy is poison. He is poisoning our body politic. He lies every day. He commits crimes right out in the open. I mean, he goes to Iraq. There's this law called the Hatch Act, right? The Hatch Act says that you may not use government facilities or government resources for political purposes. You can't do it. So at the very least, and there's this old saying that politics ends at the water's edge, no American president, to the best of my knowledge, and, you know, Maybe I'm missing one time that this happened or something, but I don't think so. To the best of my knowledge, no American president has ever gone overseas to meet with the troops and used that as an opportunity to trash his political opponents and name their party, to engage in partisan attacks, and not just attacks, lies. Donald Trump saying, oh, the Democrats, he won't even call it the Democratic Party, which is its real name, the Democrat Party, the Democrats They want open borders. They don't want a wall. They like terrorism. Seriously? I mean, these are are not just lies. These are the worst kinds of lies. And they are told to our troops, who cannot contradict their commander-in-chief, on an international platform, the entire world is watching, as you're lying about your political opposition. This is something that you would expect from al-Sisi in Egypt or Erdogan in Turkey. This is what dictators do. This is not what presidents of the United States do. Tom Friedman has this piece out in the New York Times. Tom Friedman is saying, hey, it's time for Republicans to impeach Trump. Now, when the most Republican Democrat out there, Tom Friedman, you know, neoliberal to the bottom of his shoes, comes out and says, okay, guys, this is it. You know, we've gone over the edge then we've really gone over the edge. 
And one of the things Friedman points out is that it's not just Trump, it's the people he surrounds himself with. And I'm not talking about, and Friedman's not talking about necessarily, I don't know specifically, but about all of his people who have gone to prison or are about to, Papadopoulos, Flynn, Cohen, et cetera, et cetera, but the people who have, the people that he has hired, he's got an acting attorney general in defiance of the law. The only time in the history of the United States that a president put a cabinet secretary, which the Constitution says requires Senate for confirmation, before they can begin their duties. The only time in the history of the United States this happened was by Andrew Johnson after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln when he put his guy into that position. And that was one of the things that they impeached him for. So he's got that. He's got Mike Pompeo as Secretary of State. The guy is a right-wing whack job. Friedman refers to these guys as the B team. He says no other administration would even consider hiring these people. And our Secretary of State is giving speeches now about how he's going to keep fighting the good fight until the rapture? Seriously? Mike Pompeo comes out and he says, we will continue to fight these battles. It is a never-ending struggle until the rapture. Honest to God, not making this up. You can find it all over Twitter and on the internet and whatnot. So I guess the question I'm asking or wondering or whatever is which is worse? Trump's lies, Trump's essential moral corruption, Trump's inability to empathize, Trump's inability to understand, his inability to know what's even appropriate when talking to a seven-year-old, for goodness sakes? Is that the worst part, or is it his criminality? Because Friedman is, by and large, addressing his insanity. Mueller is investigating his criminality. The Trump crime family. And the New York Times has been all over this forever, right? I've, you know, how Trump bragged that he had a $1 million loan from his father. No, he took over $400 million, and none of it was loans. He kept it from his father, and then he pissed it all away and went bankrupt over and over and over again to the point where the only way that his little, you know, 15 person company could even survive was by laundering money for foreign oligarchs. So, in your mind, which is doing more damage to the United States? Well, obviously, you can have both at the same time, right? We can't walk and chew gum. There was a tweet about Trump's trip to Iraq, which is another thing. I mean, you know, what was the most outrageous thing he, he did in Iraq? He lied about the Democrats and the border wall, as I ranted about earlier. He lied about getting them a 10% pay raise. I mean, this is incredible. He says, you haven't got a raise in more than 10 years, more than 10 years, and we got you a big one. I got you a big one. And then he talks about, they came to me and they said, we can make a 3%, we can make a 2%, we can make a 4%. And I said, no, make it 10%, make it more than 10%. And he says, make it, you know, and it's a lie. Bill Crystal retweets this and says it's a lie. I mean, you know, it's obviously it's a lie. The troops have gotten a raise every year for the last 10 years. Every year it's been between 1% and 3.9%. This year, it's going to be 2.6% or this coming year, 2019. I mean, he's just lying through his teeth. Friedman makes the point that this last week was the breaking point for him. And he doesn't explicitly say exactly what it was, but I'm guessing it was Syria. Thomas Friedman pays attention to international relations. And, I, and he's a neoliberal. He's not, I don't think he's a neocon. And... You know, this isn't about, oh, gee, we need to stay in Syria. We need to fight Assad or whatever. It's not about that at all. 
It's about do you embrace an ally, and specifically in this case the Syrian Kurds, and then have them do your fighting for you over a several year period, and have thousands of them die, and then just dump on them, destroy them. Friedman writes, and again, when Thomas Friedman is talking like this in the New York Times, you know that there's something, you know, there's a lot of Republicans who pay attention to Thomas Friedman. He says, I believe the only responsible choice for the Republican Party today is an intervention with the president that makes clear that if there's not a radical change in how he conducts himself, and I think that's unlikely, the party's leadership will have no choice but to press for his resignation or join calls for his impeachment. And it has to start with Republicans. And he's right about that. I mean, if you're going to have a conviction in the Senate, you've got to have 66 votes. And that means you're going to have to have Republican votes. Freeman writes, Trump's behavior has become so erratic, his lines so persistent, his willingness to fulfill the basic functions of the presidency, like reading briefing books, consulting government experts before making major changes, appointing a competent staff, so absent. His readiness to accommodate Russia and spurn allies so disturbing and his obsession with himself and his ego over all other considerations so consistent. Two more years of him in office could pose a real threat to our nation. What, you think the first two years didn't damage our nation? The New York Times has a great piece today about just, you know, how the damage that Trump has done to the environment with his deregulatory agenda, you know, that for some reason, some of the people on MSNBC love to talk about, well, his deregulation is helping the economy. No, it's poisoning us. And no, it doesn't help the economy. If you've got to put scrubbers on a coal-fired power plant, somebody has the job designing them, somebody gets the job manufacturing them, somebody gets the job installing them, somebody gets the job periodically cleaning them. Regulations actually generally increase employment rather than decrease employment. Just, you know, I mean, this is common sense. But in any case... And he's talking about the disengagement. This is what makes me think that Syria is the thing that pushed Friedman over the top. He says, the last time America disengaged in the world remotely in this manner was in the 1930s. And you remember what followed, World War II, right? We ignored what Germany was doing. In fact, many Americans embraced what Germany was doing. The whole American first thing with Lucky Lindy, Charles Lindbergh, and and just the German-American boon. You know, half a million German-Americans out there, you know, wearing swastikas and saluting. And we just kind of, you know, it was a Republican administration, or it was a series of them. Harding, Coolidge, Hoover. And what was their concern? It wasn't, well, that was the 20s, actually. The early 30s, I guess that was FDR. We were so busy trying to get out of the Republican Great Depression that we weren't attending to what went on. The turning back of the USS Liberty, the ship with Jews trying to flee Germany, one of the great stains in our history that happened during FDR's presidency. But it led to World War II. I mean, are we setting up the destruction of the planet by war? Or are we setting up the slower but more inexorable destruction of the planet by climate change? It seems like, you know, Trump is committed to doing both. Freeman makes the point that there's a minimum decorum and stability that we expect from our president. And he talks about if the CEO of any public company had behaved like Trump over the last two years, constantly lying, tossing out aides like they were Kleenex, tweeting endlessly like a teenager, ignoring the advice of experts, the board of directors would have taken him out and fired him. Right? I mean, Elon Musk does one or two kind of weird tweets, and he nearly loses his company. Trump? Nah. What do we do? What's the worst part of this? Where is this going to end up? What do you think? We all want to find the perfect unicorn gift to give at the holiday gift exchange or to family and friends that'll really stand out, right? 
I have one that will be the talk of the office, a hit with friends and family, and will actually be useful. Tiger Lady. Tiger Lady has been featured in Runner's World Gift Guide two years now. You may know Tiger Lady as the revolutionary self-defense tool based on a cat's retractable claws. When you make a fist, three claws come out like a real-life wolverine. It's lightweight and designed to collect DNA. Tiger Lady doesn't require training, and it's legal in all 50 states. It's recommended by police and self-defense instructors, making it the perfect stocking stuffer for anyone on your list. Tiger Lady will make your loved ones feel aware and confident when they walk alone. Order by December 14th for free shipping and time for Christmas. Go to TigerLady.com or use the code CHEER, C-H-E-E-R, for a 25% savings and to receive a free whistle LED flashlight keychain while supplies last. Give the gift of safety this year by giving Tiger Lady. Remember, use the code CHEER, C-H-E-E-R, and go to TigerLady.com. That's TigerLady.com. Tom Harvin here with you, and on the line with us is Candace Burnt, the uh, staff reporter at truthout.org. Candace, B-E-R-N-D, is her Twitter handle and her name. Uh, Candace, welcome to the program. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. So I've been wondering, ever since this so-called First Step Act, the criminal justice reform, when I learned that Jared Kushner was pushing this thing, and his dad, of course, you know, went to prison for financial fraud, and he may face the same himself, and, and the Koch brothers were promoting it, and they had been previously promoting the whole mens rea thing that would make it much, much harder to throw white-collar criminals in jail. I've been very suspicious, and uh, you did some really good reporting on this. I wonder, what's the real story here with this so-called criminal justice reform? Right, right, exactly. That kind of skepticism, I think, is always warranted when you have players like Koch's Mark Holden uh, and Jared Kushner so closely involved in shaping something like this. Um, but before I get into, you know, this, the sort of caution um, that a lot of my reporting was about, I do want to just take a second to say that this, this act that got passed and signed does do some really good things. Um, and I think we have to weigh that against the benefits. Um, some really important sentencing reductions got passed in this law that I think are, are really significant. Uh, I think what critics are pointing out, though, is that it's it's such a narrow slice of people that are going to see these benefits. Um, when we talk about, you know, this being sort of the largest blow against mandatory minimums since the 2010 Fair Sentencing Act, um, we can look at, you know, that act being retroactive and see that it's only going to affect about 2,600 people. This This whole bill only affects the federal prison system, which is really only about 13% of the entire, you know, 2.1 million incarcerated population. Um, so, it, you know, this is a fraction of a fraction of folks that are going to see the benefits of this. And, and like you said, with the, the risk assessment regime that this uh, act is setting up, a lot of the people who are going to be eligible for these programs are people who are going to be deemed low risk. And that means really well-resourced, often white white folks, white men, affluent, who, white men. affluent right, yeah. who went in on these white-collar crimes, which is, you know, that that's the kind of regime that Jared, Jared Kushner and Mark Holden have set up here with this bill. It will definitely, you know, it's definitely going to help out uh, some folks, um, some more marginalized folks, but I think that the, the, a lot of really well-resourced white-collar uh, crime folks are going to end up being more eligible. Um, and what critics of this bill are, are much more concerned about 
what they think outweighs the sort of benefits that we're getting uh, from these sentencing reductions overall is is coupled with that risk assessment regime and, and how it sets up an electronic monitoring system. They're really, really concerned about these ankle monitors or this electronic surveillance aspect of this bill. Um, it sets up CoreCivic, um, you know, formerly known as Corrections Corporation of America, and GEO uh, Group, another, you know, the second largest private prison corporation. It sets them up to make a lot of money um, coming in and, um, for these reentry services that are, are going to be set up. And then also these ankle monitors, they're going to be profiting a lot off of these, these so, ankle monitors. So, so do I have this right? Basically, the law says that particularly with these white collar criminals, you know, you can let them out of jail early, not to worry. But when you do, you've got to put them in the hands of a privatized for-profit system, keeping track of them and, and you know, protecting us from them or whatever. Ever, you know, with the ankle bracelets and all this kind of stuff. And that in and of itself is going to be a multi-billion dollar industry. Right, right. That's exactly right. And I think, I think you know, with, with the white collar folks, the folks who end up being deemed the most low risk, a lot of those folks may not even end up on monitors. They may just be uh, uh, eligible for just early release on their mm-hmm. own. And a lot of the more marginalized folks are the folks that are going to end up with, with supervised sort of, uh, you know, surveillance state release. Um, you can get out, but you have to agree to this monitor, which, you know, we have already seen that with the monitors, people have paid up to $35 a day for their own monitor. That's, there's nothing in this bill that, that prevents these corporations from charging people a fee for their own monitoring devices. Hmm. Um, that's incredibly dangerous. And then when we talk about post-prison services, re-entry, uh, re-entry halfway houses, those are the very um, sources of, of this this private private prison industry that these corporations are moving into, and they're moving into those areas very, very heavily this year. Um, in particular, they did a lot of research to, to buy up halfway houses and, and things like that. Um, so, so this bill in particular authorizes a $375 million post-prison services uh, sort of expansion, and that's what many critics are sort of deeming the, the treatment industrial complex. Um, if you will. So that's why CoreCivic and Geo Group, along with the Koch brothers and Jared Kushner, backed this bill so heavily. In fact, they said they're all going to make money adjourn, on it. I'm sorry. Not adjourn without passing this bill was was sort of their line. Right. And so, geez, this is this is so sad to hear because, you know, there was all this optimistic, happy talk on TV and radio about how, oh, we're finally going to, you know, undo some of the damage that was done by the, frankly, racist policies. You know, George Herbert Walker Bush buying cocaine across the street from the White House, setting that kid up and, and you know, the, the disparate sentencing and all this. You know, everybody knows the horror stories of minimum mandatory. And, and you know, let's let's fix some of this. And it turns out, you know, uh, a few thousand people, mostly affluent white collar criminals are going to benefit from this law it doesn't affect state prisons or state laws at all and and it's creating a whole brand new multi-billion dollar industry within the in the correction system this is right and go ahead right and i think it's interesting you brought up hw there um you know look at who is the the incoming attorney general william barr he oversaw the bureau of prisons during during the war on drugs um, that set up all of these casualties of those war and funneled them into the incarceration system. And he's in charge of setting up now, uh, or it's, it's going to be the, the attorney general that's in charge of, of these risk assessments, putting those 
systems in place. It's the risk assessments that sort of determine early release, supervised release, that kind of thing. So he's going to be overseeing this. Um, and what critics are, are saying is that this has systematically sort of carved out those casualties of the war on drugs in particular um, in a very glaring way. Um, you know, it does make that 2010 Fair Sentencing Act retroactive, but if they wanted to really include the casualties of the war on drugs, they would have made the Sentencing Reform Corrections Act re- retroactive if yeah. they really had wanted to to include those folks. Um, so, so, yeah, uh, it, it, it includes systematically those folks. Yeah, remarkable. Do you see any way that we can actually have genuine criminal justice reform in this country as opposed to just, you know, a, a Band-Aid with a, with a billion-dollar price tag? Right. Well, you know, many people are, are, are rightfully saying, oh, this is just a first step. One of my sources called it, it's only a baby step, is, mm. is what she said. But I think that with the dangers that this, this bill sets up with the electronic monitors, setting up these private corporations to profit. I think that most crucially, we really need to follow up and demand that accountability measures are put in place. First of all, I, I think there should have been some measure in this bill that said we can't have these kinds of public-private partnerships um, and really did something to limit to limit that in right. general. This is the further um, privatization so, of our criminal justice system, essentially. Right, right. So I think first off, we, we got to... because. Because we're basically, it's a trade-off between the short-term relief for a very few, uh, very a small slice, a fraction of a fraction of the federal uh, prison system versus, you know, you got to think about what are communities going to look like in 20 years. You can imagine marginalized communities um, who are bogged down with these monitors that they have to pay for. Um, and it's this kind of expansion of the prison outside the prison system and into folks' homes, marginalized people's homes. Is this going to turn, Candace, home- is this going to turn into something where if uh, under the old laws, somebody might have gotten, say, five years in jail, they get out after three years, you know, good behavior um, and, uh, you know, spend a year and a halfway house or six months or whatever, and then boom, they're done. And now, instead of five years, they're going to spend two years, let's say, uh, in jail. But then they're going to spend the next seven years with an ankle, ankle bracelet on, paying core civic, uh, you know, a fee every day. I mean, is that is is it actually, if you include the the monitored release, actually going to extend sentences? Right. Um, you know, I think I don't. I'm not so sure about extending sentences as much as there's no incentive once we have this ankle monitor regime in place. And remember, already 200,000 people are already on ankle monitors. Um, but once you have this uh, of a more systematic uh, regime in place for these ankle monitors, I think the concern is really that there's nothing that incentivizes reducing people from monitors. They, 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 right. you know, there's nothing that says we're not going to double the population that's on monitors. Well, on the, on the on right. contrary, there's, no there's a huge incentive to increase that population right, because it's exactly. a profit center. Right, exactly. I think that is the main concern is that it's going to double this population of, of folks. You know, people may be getting out, um, but we're going to see this huge balloon in the population of, of people who are on electronic monitors, which, you know, it doesn't only, there, it, it's obviously there's the stigma that goes into it. But another thing that critics point out is that it, it turns your house into a jail for one thing, but it also turns your family, if you're staying with family, into your jailers. And they have to suffer the repercussions as well because 
they are subject, if someone with an ankle monitor is staying with a relative, those relatives are subject to searches and seizures within their home at any time. Oh, amazing. Candace, I'm sorry, we're, we're out of time, but Candace, Candace Byrne, her piece, uh, Trump's Sinister First Step Act on Truth Out. Check it out. Candace, thanks so much for dropping by. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate Great talking it. with you. I do appreciate it. Congressman Mark Pocan is with us, the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and represents the great state of Wisconsin. And I should add, Congressman Pocan, the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, kind of the head progressive guy or one of the two, along with Pramila Jayapal in the House of Representatives. And his website, pocan.house.gov. You can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan, P-O-C-A. And Congressman, welcome back. Oh, thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. It is great having you with us. So what is the status of the shutdown? And in your opinion, what's the status of our body politic and our body economic? Yeah, so, I mean, the status of the shutdown is, I think, what everyone's hearing is what I'm hearing. I'm literally waiting to find out if I have to go back at any time before we get sworn on the 3rd. You would hope so, that we would end a shutdown. But Donald Trump seems to, you know, he's even missing golfing, so this must be real serious to him. Yet he's not actually negotiating. I mean, throughout the last several days, he talked about, you know, having lunch, trying to figure out the wall, but he didn't have lunch with any Democrats. Or he's talked about doing leases for the wall, which is impossible, and neither was a lie, or he is completely uninformed. Either one makes me nervous that that's coming out of the president. So we're waiting for him to get over his, you know, holding his breath that was uh, induced by, you know, some conservative talking heads and try to make sure we reopen the government. In the meantime, you know, every time we do this, this is bad for the economy. It's bad for the markets. We saw what happened. It's bad across the board. And Donald Trump, I think, right now cares more about trying to save face with a couple conservative talking heads than having the country move forward like we need to. So it's just kind of a sad state of affairs. I'm, again, waiting to see if we get called in at any time, but I'm not guessing he's going to change. I think he's going to hold his breath until we come in on the 3rd, and then he wants to try to blame it somehow on Democrats, but that's my best guess at this point. Don't you think at a certain level this is the kickoff of his 2020 presidential re-election campaign that, you know, he's basically down to a base of male misogynists and white people who hate people of color. And that's the subtext, obviously, of the wall. Keep those brown people out of this country. Even though, you know, I think it's for the last 10 years, I might be wrong on how many years, maybe it's nine years, immigration from south of the border to the United States, excluding refugees, but actual migration is negative. We've actually fewer people, more people have left the United States in the last X number of years, seven, eight, nine, ten, than have come to the United States from south of the border. And I saw Jeff Merkley put out a stat, I think also Chris Murphy put it out, that 94% of the money that we gave him in the last budget for border security, he hasn't spent yet. So this is even more ridiculous, right? We're not actually dealing with border security as he said he wants. This is about his ego and his base and a wall. And I think you're right. In fact, I think there's a good chance he may want to do a lot of short-term funding resolutions so that he can continually have this fight and blame Democrats. I wouldn't be shocked at all if that's the end result is a short-term fix so that he can have this fight over and over and over. Well, this is the third time he shut down the government. Were the other two shutdowns, I'm sorry, they, they, they passed so fast I didn't notice. What was like one day they weren't significant, and even this one, it's... But were they about, about the wall? At least one other one, I believe, was, and they yeah. might have both have been. But again, most of this 
you shouldn't shut down unless there's some kind of incompetence. And you had a Republican yeah. Congress, Republican Senate, Republican president. So obviously incompetence was the, probably the greater overall problem they're having. But, you know, Donald Trump is so unpredictable. And now even Republicans with, a, you know, basically pushing out of, of Mattis, uh, they're even concerned now because that's getting their attention rather than, of course, you know, people who kids who are dying in our custody or anything else. So I'm just looking really forward to January 3rd when we can actually start our work. There's been no oversight for the last two years by anyone in Congress. We can start doing that. But I think that's what the president, ultimately, he was getting some really, really, really bad press with all of his associates getting indicted. He quickly pivoted to, you know, the Syria situation. And then this, he's basically taken off of the airwaves what he wanted to take off. But we're punishing a whole lot of people in the economy along the way. Yeah. So let's pick up some phone calls here. Absolutely. Uh, Michael in Bronx, New York, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hello, Tom. Hello, Congressman Mark. I just had to echo and add to this whole thing of the border war with of Trump's relentless attack on Christmas with this happy holidays versus Merry Christmas. He demands people to say Merry Christmas, but yet look what happened over the weekend with this shutdown he ruined thousands of workers Christmases and their families. If you saw the Daily News front cover, New York Daily News, that Saturday they said how the Trump stole Christmas, substituting Trump for Grinch, and they were right on target. And as a Christian, I am getting sick and dark on tired of people like Trump trying to claim Christianity, trying to Force people say Merry Christmas, and then yet he is never, 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 ever sincere with that kind of greeting. There is no love. There is no care whatsoever on this guy. All he wants is people to just bow down, kiss his rum, violate every single law, constitutional right. You can go down the list. This guy is so doggone dangerous and reprehensible that I can't even think straight now because... You know, my heart goes out to the thousands of workers that have been affected. And then meanwhile, he's still uttering lies against people of color, against Mexicans, against African-Americans, saying we're bad to the core, we're rotten to the core, we're rapists and all that stuff. Yeah, pop calling the kettle black when he's the one that boasted on a live recording about grabbing women by the private parts and then meanwhile you have people coming into this nation from the other border that is not secure that have been clearly armed and dangerous let's let congressman pocan respond thank you for the great yeah. rant yeah michael you know i i agree you know this guy's a gem right um that's about the only way to to put it so many things that are completely hypocritical some things that he'll say and literally you know hours later say the complete opposite thing and he'll say he never said the other thing you know his big sacrifice is not going to mar-a-lago and golfing when i've read a bunch of accounts of people who are federal employees eight hundred thousand people are affected right now by the shutdown who didn't buy christmas gifts because they're not sure when they're going to get paid and you know this is all over his holding his breath over the wall because he has to deliver for people, even though even the Republicans in Congress 
don't really believe in it. In the last appropriations bill, I know I said this before, Tom, in previous programs, I think it's good to emphasize, uh, they put in the language in the appropriations bills that we passed that no money could go to any designs after March of 2017. That's the month that the designs came out for the president's wall. So even they know we can spend money far wiser on border security that doesn't involve a wall, and yet here we are, Paul Ryan unwilling to stand up to the president, Mitch McConnell unwilling to stand up, and now we're in a government shutdown. So there's a lot of bad behavior. I think Paul Ryan gets a lump of coal or two. I think Mitch McConnell gets a lump of coal or two. And Donald Trump, I think we can give him a coal plant, because I think that's how he thinks. (laughs) An entire mine, all his own. As you probably know, Louise and I are basically vegans who eat fish once a month, but odds are you're not. Omaha Steaks has a really great product for the holidays for for those of you who eat meat. This is the gift that families across America have loved for over 100 years. Right now, Omaha Steaks has an amazing limited time offer for my listeners. When you go to omahasteaks.com, enter the code REPORT and you'll get 74% off Omaha Steaks family gift package. Originally $195, now just $49.99. Order now and you'll get four hand-cut tender top sirloin steaks, two savory premium pork chops, four chicken fried steaks, four Omaha steak burgers, four kielbasa sausages, all beef meatballs, four potatoes au gratin, four caramel apple tartlets, plus four more burgers for free. Omaha Steaks is a fifth generation family owned company with over a hundred years of experience delivering perfectly aged beef hand cut by master butchers in Omaha. This offer ends soon. Go to omahasteaks.com, enter the code REPORT, R-E-P-O-R-T, REPORT in the search bar and get 74% off Omaha Steaks family gift package. That's omahasteaks.com, code REPORT. Vince in Gulf Shores, Alabama. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. I had a question about the Posse Comitatus Act and would it have been appropriate to invoke that during the deployment of troops to the border? If the executive branch is responsible for enforcing laws, isn't that inherently contradictory with regard to this particular executive branch? Boy, I'll tell you. Um, so first of all, let me take on, I don't think the Posse Comitatus Law would affect us putting troops at the border. So I, I don't think there'd be any way to invoke that in here. I do think what you're saying, though, about the president doing this is pretty amazing, right? Um, you know, his entire policy of bringing a bunch of people to the border when we knew that the last time there was a caravan, very few people actually wound up coming to the border in the end, and very few people got arrested. This was all again for show. This is Donald Trump being first a reality show star, second a scheming business person, and third the president of the United States. I think that's truly how he sees his pecking order of who he is, and it's good theater, it's good drama, it's good for ratings, sending troops down there, and it's good for his base. And now shutting down government, even though um, they told the Senate they were okay with the deal, all of a sudden he changed his mind because of some conservative commentators. And I think ultimately this is what Donald Trump wanted, again, is good ratings, but also to pull away from the real attention of what he's facing and every one of his associates are getting indicted right now. Um, unfortunately, we have to live through this. You know, this is the President of the United States, so my hopes are that come January 3rd, we start immediately doing the proper oversight hearings while moving forward, uh, good policy, and uh, we'll ultimately get to the bottom of all this. And, you know, if it eventually means we have a President Pence, 
Um, while that doesn't thrill me, it's better than uh, a President Trump that scares uh, so many people. So we're going to move forward on this, but I certainly agree this guy is a gem. Yeah. My recollection is Posse Comitatus was passed to prevent the Northern soldiers from enforcing the law in the South. And if the soldiers had been armed, which Mattis didn't do, and if they had been turning those arms on U.S. residents, yeah, right. in other words, engaging in police activities, then it would have been a violation of the Posse Comitatus Act. Is that correct? That sounds about right, but again, I think they would have made sure. In no way were they doing something, I think, that's in violation. You know, should Congress, we're not initiating a war, so it's not like a Yemen situation. So I think, you know, the president could do what he did. I also disagreed when they are asking for National Guard troops to go to the border, and Scott Walker sent some, which was also ridiculous. So hmm. a lot of people missed the holidays so that Donald Trump and people like Scott Walker could feel important. And, you know, we're waiting for this era to end. Yeah, amen. Obi in La Crosse, Wisconsin. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Congressman, studying my pocket constitution, uh, my question's about pardon powers. How do we preempt the presidential pardon powers? It says he's in cases of impeachment. So does that mean that we have to pass articles of impeachment out of the House or merely form an impeachment committee? How far down the impeachment road does Congress have to go before his pardon powers are preempted or limited. Yeah, Obi, I, I couldn't tell you that directly. I mean, generally, Congress doesn't have long and meaningful debates about impeachment, except when you have a situation like we have right now. And I think everyone has been waiting for the Mueller investigation. Uh, we're going to be able to now do our proper oversight, including areas that Mr. Mueller is not looking at. But, you know, there's a lot of uh, various hypothetical situations that with this president, you never would have thought would have been hypothetical, but with this president could be. So, uh, you know, who he all could pardon, who all could be witnesses, you know, the whole you dirty rat sort of tweets that he's put out there to threaten. So I don't have a great answer for you, Obi, other than, you know, the big thing that we all are waiting for, because you're still going to have a Republican Senate in this, is the Mueller investigation. Although I do think when you start seeing things like what happened in Syria, and specifically with General Mattis leaving so quickly, quicker than he had said originally, this is what now troubles some Republicans. And maybe, maybe we can start getting their attention to some of the other things that have been troubling many of us for quite a bit of time. Sheldon in Canada. Where in Canada are you, Sheldon? Ontario. Okay, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Oh, thanks for taking my call, man. I just wanted to say something, if you guys could just hear me out. If when Barack Obama was running for president in 2008. He said, well, he's going to give health care for all, and Canada was going to pay for it. If he had run on that, and then afterwards he come to the Congress and tell him the Congress now that he needs the Congress to give him the money to set it up to pay for it, wouldn't it be the Republican will be up in arms over it? Why is it that the Democrats are losing narrative on this thing when Mexico was supposed to pay for the wall. Nobody is stressing on that. And this is a winning argument. Let him get Mexico to answer for the question for Mexico. Where is Mexico in the whole negotiation of the wall? So, Sheldon, a couple things. First of all, I think, unfortunately, we're getting pretty used to the president lying to us. So, you know, don't forget, originally it was not only Mexico paying for the wall, but it was a concrete wall. Now it's this new design he sent out of Iron Slat, which was not a design that he created just uh, in March of 2017 when he first had his designs for the wall come out. Everything keeps evolving with this president. So people are very aware of that. And the good news is we're not losing on this. It's a pretty narrow amount of people who want the wall and who want to shut down over the wall 
even more narrow. So, you know, we're all right having this conversation. We're all right trying to fight against any money being wasted on a wall. Look, a wall is a very old concept. We can have drones. We can have a lot of other ways of doing surveillance that can protect a border without having to put up a wall. And the president just doesn't want to talk about it because this is his kind of campaign rallying point. So the good news is we are winning on this. I think that point that you brought up, Sheldon, is out there. For his supporters, I don't think they really care. Whatever he says about this, they're going to believe. I loved uh, Nancy Pelosi's comment about a beaded curtain. We're going to be down to at some point, you know, as the border under the president's trying to save face. But I think at the end of the day, the American people are with us on this. Robert in Chicago, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Okay, yeah. You know, Mexico's going to pay for the wall one way or another, through tariffs or whatever. My question is on the tariffs. My understanding, or maybe I'm wrong here, is that the real person or people that are going to pay those tariffs are really the U.S. consumer, because we'll be paying higher prices for the goods and products and services coming from Mexico. But my real question is, who initially pays that fee? Is it the Mexican company trying to export to the United States, or is it the U.S. company trying to import into the United States? Well, as I understand, a tariff essentially is money that goes into our government pool when the money does come in. So I guess if he's arguing that when the consumer pays more here for something that gets a tariff coming in from Mexico, somehow, I agree with you, I think the consumer ultimately winds up paying that in that scenario. Even this, though, is a faulty argument, if I can. Let me just take it one step back, Robert, because that agreement that he has with the Mexico government has not been approved by Congress yet. In fact, we have a lot of problems with it. A lot of the things that are marginally moving forward on labor standards have no enforcement mechanism whatsoever, so they sound great on paper, but they won't work. So we're still going to have problems that I don't know if uh, he takes away the tariffs, you're still going to have job loss. So a lot of this is just Donald Trump bloviating, trying to save faith. So ultimately, even getting to that point of the debate puts us in a place that is not a useful debate, because I would disagree that there will be tariffs that pay for this, because if we have a new NAFTA, hopefully the higher labor stands and other things will stop jobs from going there. But tariffs are not going to necessarily be in place to pay for it. So uh, this is just Donald Trump once again diverting from the real issue, which is he can't get off of the wall because his base loves this, even though a wall is probably, one, definitely not necessary, two, not affordable, and three, there's better ways of actually having border protection. Yeah, and I can add to that. Back in the uh, mid-1980s, Jerry Schneiderman and I owned a company called Langley St. Clair Instrumentation Systems. We bought the back cover of Byte magazine for like a couple years in a row, and we were importing stuff from Japan specifically, computer stuff to sell in the United States. And there was a tariff at that time. There was an import tariff. And my recollection is that we ran it through a broker and the broker collected the tariff and paid it. I was traveling to Japan a lot during this time and that I was negotiating with a Japanese company over who's going to pick up how much of the tariff. So it was a negotiable item. I'm not sure who was legally responsible for it. Again, my recollection is it was handled by a broker. But to the specific you know, little picky uni part of his question, the, the detail yeah. of the question. I think that that's the answer is that, you know, the companies work it out, they figure it out, but ultimately, yeah, it gets either passed along to the consumer or the company takes a lower profit or reduces their executive salaries, which but is what we you did. You may not even have tariffs if you have a trade agreement. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from the Tom Hartman Reader. This particular chapter is an excerpt from my book, Threshold. 
This is from page 312, titled Sociopathic Paychecks. And it starts out with a quote from The Little Prince, 1943. I know a planet where there is a certain red-faced gentleman. He has never smelled a flower. He has never looked at a star. And all day he says over and over, just like you, I am busy with matters of consequence. And that makes him swell up with pride. But he is not a man. He is a mushroom. Okay, through the book. Americans have long understood how socially, politically, and economically destabilizing are huge disparities in wealth. For this reason, the U.S. military and the U.S. civil service have built into them systems that ensure that the highest paid federal official, including the president, will never earn more than 20 times the salary of the lowest paid janitor or army private. Most colleges have similar programs in place with the ratios ranging from 10 to 1 to 20 to 1 between the president of the university and the guy who mows the grass. From the 1940s through the 1980s, this was also a general rule of thumb in most of corporate America. When CEOs took more than their fair share, they were restrained by their boards so that the money could be used instead by the company for growth and to open new areas of opportunity. The robber baron J.P. Morgan himself suggested that nobody in a company, including his company, should earn more than 20 times the lowest paid employee. Although he exempted stock ownership from that equation, he owned most of the stock. During the greed is good era of the 1980s, something changed. CEO salaries began to explode at the same time that the behavior of multinational corporations began to change. When Reagan stopped enforcing the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890, a mergers and acquisition mania filled the air. And as big companies merged to become bigger, they shed off redundant parts. The result was a series of waves of layoffs as entire communities were decimated, divorce and suicide rates exploded, and America was introduced to the specter of the armed, disgruntled employee. Accompanying the consolidation of wealth and power of these corporations was the very real redefinition of employment, from providing a living wage to people in the community to a variable expense on a profit and loss sheet. Companies that manufactured everything from clothing to television sets discovered that there was a world full of people willing to work for 50 cents an hour or less. Throughout the American... Throughout, throughout America, factories closed and a building boom commenced among the Asian tigers of Taiwan, South Korea, and Thailand. The process has become so complete that of the millions of American flags bought and waved after the trade, World Trade Center disaster, 9-11, most were manufactured in China. Very, very, very few things are still manufactured in the United States outside of the uh, defense industry, weapons. And it wasn't unthinking, unfeeling corporations that took advantage of the changes in the ways the Sherman Antitrust Act and other laws uh, were, were enforced by Reagan, Bush Sr., Clinton, and Bush Jr. administrations. It took a special type of human person. In his manuscript, Toys, War, and Faith, Democracy in Jeopardy, Major William C. Gladish suggests that this special breed of person is actually a rare commodity and thus highly valuable. He notes that corporate executives make so much money because of simple supply and demand. There are, of course, many people out there with the best education from the best school, uh, raised in upper-class families who know how to play the games of status, corporate intrigue, and power. The labor pool would seem to be quite large, but Gladish points out there's another and more demanding requirement to meet. They must be willing to operate in a runaway economic and financial system that demands the exploitation of humanity and the environment for short-term gain. This is a disturbing contradiction to their children's interest and their own intelligence, education, cultural appreciation, and religious beliefs. It's the second requirement, Gladish notes, 
that drastically reduces the number of quality candidates for corporations to pick from. Most people in this group are not willing to forsake God, family, and humanity to further corporate interests in a predatory financial system. For the small percentage of people left, the system continues to increase salaries and benefit packages to entice the most qualified and ruthless to detach themselves from humanity and become corporate executives and their hired guns. One of the questions often asked when the subject of CEO pay comes up is, what would a person like William McGuire or Rex Tillerson, the CEOs of United Healthcare and ExxonMobil, respectively, possibly do to justify a $1.7 billion paycheck or a $400 million retirement bonus? It's an interesting question. There's a free market for labor or CEOs. You'd think there'd be a lot of competition for the jobs. And a lot of people competing for the positions would drive down the pay. All the United Healthcare stockholders would have to do to avoid paying more than a billion dollars to McGuire is find somebody to do the same CEO job for a half billion dollars. And all they'd have to do to save even more is find somebody to do the job for a mere hundred million dollars. Or maybe even somebody who'd work the necessary 60-hour weeks for only one million dollars. So why is executive pay so high? I've examined this question with both my psychotherapist hat on and my amateur economist hat on, and only one rational answer presents itself. CEOs in America make as much money as they do because there really is a shortage of well-trained sociopaths. You spend every day in your office chair. That's over 2,000 hours a year. So if you're spending all that time in the wrong chair, is it any wonder why you're sore and tired at the end of the day? Ditch that no-name, one-size-fits-all superstore chair and trade up to the X chair. When you feel the X chair difference, you'll understand. My X chair is the most stylish chair I've ever owned. Trust me, this is not your grandfather's office chair. Switching to the X chair, I'm more productive and have more energy. I love my X chair and you will too. X chair is now on sale for the holidays, so buy one for yourself and one for someone you love. X chair is now on sale for $100 off. So call 844-4X-CHAIR or go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to save 100 bucks. And here's a special deal just for my listeners. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and they'll even throw in a free footrest. Go to xchairtom or call 844-4X-CHAIR and use the code TOM for a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com, 844-4X-CHAIR. And Will in Salem, Oregon, you're on the air. And thanks for watching us on Facebook Live. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Tom. Hi, Representative Pocan. Nice talking to you. Would you be willing to sponsor legislation to repeal, reverse the 2005 bankruptcy bill that outlawed discharging private student loan debt for the first time? This is killing me personally and about everybody I know. It's really a, a horror. It's something I'd take a look at. You know, I know that we've had a number of bills around student debt, including the very first bill in the country introduced back in 2013 to allow people to refinance debt. And this is one area I think now that we're back in the majority, you're going to see some positive action on. So let me take a look at it. I can't tell you uh, directly. I wasn't Congress when it passed. I'd have to take a look at some of the other provisions within it and see what's there. But student debt is now the number two type of debt of all types of debt in the country. And uh, it's really holding folks back. One of the reasons why we've introduced a debt-free college bill, which could have people go to a four-year public institution and leave with zero debt whatsoever. I think it's a really great initiative, and I think you're going to see and hear more about that in the 116th Congress. But there's a lot we need to do around student debt, including refinancing, including looking at existing debt. And I'll be glad to take a look at that bill. Nick, in Federal Way, Washington, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. 
Good afternoon, Congressman. Thanks for your service. I have a quick question. You know, we all understand in Budget 101, Plan A is that Congress creates a budget and submits it to the president, and the president signs it. But I want you to check me on my civics. Hypothetically speaking, isn't it true that Congress could submit a budget, the president can veto it, and Congress can override that veto? Well, yeah, we have the power of override, which is why on the continuing resolution that we had agreed to that the Senate sent over, had Paul Ryan just did his job and passed that and still passed what the president wanted, you know, the president could have vetoed what we sent back to him, which everyone agreed to, and we could have overrode that veto if we actually had the guts to do it. Unfortunately, Paul Ryan and guts aren't technically allowed to be in the the same sentence. So that's part of our problem. What we're hoping is, again, come January 3rd, Nancy Pelosi has no problem with having guts. uh, And I think we'll be able to have a very different um, way to move forward, even though he's going to try to use it to blame and, as Tom said, set up his 2020 run. Um, I think uh, people, again, are are way on to Donald Trump at this point, and uh, we'll be able to move a lot better forward. But really... um, I don't know, think Paul Ryan ever would have done the right thing, like standing up and trying to do override a veto. So while it's a real thing should have happened, I don't think it was a real situation because of Paul. Michael in Snohomish, Washington. Hey, Michael, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hey, Tom. Yeah, I was wondering if you know anything about Trump's ceding territory to Mexico. I heard over Christmas that another guest talking about Trump's border wall, and they said that Trump's plans seeds enough land to Mexico to more than equal the state of Delaware. And when I asked him how that happens, he said it was because the wall doesn't follow all the little whoopsie-doodles of the border and cuts across farmland and parkland to make it quicker and easier. Right, it has I to wondered be, if you knew anything about it. It has to be inside the U.S., so it has to be set back from the border. Yeah, I I think I, if we ever got to this point that, again, I, I don't think we're ever going to get to of having a full border, I assume that because of the, the actual line of the country and the geographic barriers and things that they would have to have areas where you'll have U.S. land on the other side of the border. So um, arguably, I, I don't know what the size of that is, but that would be real. I think what's not real is there'll ever be a border across the entire uh, southern border of the United States. So, uh, again, as much as Donald Trump may say he wants it, um, it's not going to happen. I just don't see that ever, ever happening. Congressman, we already have a, uh, a border wall that, that stretches, I think, about a thousand miles. I mean, you know, from California through New Mexico. How do you expect this thing to play out? I mean, you're saying you don't expect it to happen, and yet Trump is staking his presidency on it. Do you think that's just all theater? We did do some of this kind of construction back during the George H.W. Bush administration and the Clinton administration. I believe that's when most of the wall was built. I personally, this is just my opinion, I think this is such theater that even Donald Trump doesn't actually care about a wall. Um, When he was offered money last year at this time from Chuck Schumer for a wall, and many of us were not happy about it because we think it's an absolutely idiotic idea to put a wall across the country, he didn't take yes for an answer. Because, again, he loves to have uh, go to the rallies and get the adoration from his fans about the issue. But if you actually build it, you take it away as an issue. So I'm not even sure how much he actually believes this. Clearly, the Republicans didn't because they put the language in the last appropriations process that completely said you can't put a dime into anything that would even look like what Donald Trump said it would look like. So that's why I think it's not real. The, the reality is a wall is a very several 
century back solution, you know, we have drones, we have other ways of being able to patrol borders without putting up a physical border. And uh, he just doesn't want to accept that because he said it's going to be a wall or now it's uh, apparently this the spiked you know, metal slats, and I don't know, like Nancy said, he might be down to a beaded curtain uh, very, very soon. But the reality is none of that actually makes sense, given there's there's technology that can do it much cheaper so, and better. So you think this is like the Republican rhetoric on the balanced budget? I, I, for Donald Trump, I truly think so, because when he had a chance, he did not take yes for an answer. And yet, you know, he loves to talk about it, but he didn't, when he had a chance, he didn't do it. Right. And no Republicans since Dwight Eisenhower has proposed to balance budgets. So it's yeah. amazing. And welcome back, Congressman Pocan, taking your calls. Ken in Springfield, Illinois, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Thank you, Tom. Yes, Congressman. I'm kind of calling for something off the cuff, calling about smart meters. I see that Wisconsin has implemented a uh, smart meter on the gas and electrical. My question is, do you think they're safe? Do you think that these organizations that are fighting the smart meters are legitimate? And do you think the gas and electric companies have an obligation of moving the meters away from the house? And what you think about the charges that the utility companies are charging, and if that's not a profit for them? Uh, Okay, Ken, there's a lot there, and a lot of that happens at the state level, but uh, I can tell you that in my last term in the state legislature, uh, we did have a rather extensive hearing in a committee I was on on smart meters because we were helping to, I think, fund some of it happening around um, the state, and there were some areas that hadn't gone there yet. The lead opposition were people who wore the Don't Tread on Me flags that the Tea Party um, puts out there, and they were kind of the fringe of the Tea Party that was there. So I can't tell you that I'm extremely well-versed on the issue, but from my experience, the people I've seen that have largely been opposing this have been kind of from the, and I know it sounds crazy to say the fringe of the Tea Party, but that's kind of where they came from. So I'm not too concerned, but I will admit this has not been in my federal wheelhouse. Pedro in uh, El Paso, Texas. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Down here, I live down here in the Southwest, and uh, I just wanted to make a comment about that wall making it safer. Uh, uh, you know what? I live in one of the safest communities in the, in the in the United States, which is down here in El Paso, Texas, and uh, it's not because of that wall. You know, there's people that, that, that commute from Juarez, Mexico, to El Paso, come and work, put in a day's work, and go back home to Juarez. And another thing, he's talking about drugs. He needs to fix the problem here in the United States. That's why all those drugs are coming over, because the demand is here in the United States. We need to fix that problem first. And that's all I have to say on that one. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Yeah, Pedro, I wish I had at the tip of my tongue the stat, but it's something like 90 to 95% of the drug tra- traffic that comes into the United States comes through legal points of entry. So, again, a wall does not solve what the president claims he's trying to solve. So you're right, it's just another Trumpism, uh, something that isn't true but is said over and over. Maybe that is what we should start calling things like that. The other part, you're right. I mean, if you put up a wall, I guarantee it will not be easy for people who have current working relationships to be able to go back and forth like they currently do, especially in areas like El Paso, where it's 
quite common. So this is something that, again, if it were ever to be real, would be part of the complications, which is why I think it'll never be real. But all the more reason, uh, why would we even give him $5 billion to completely waste and why we're fighting for this? Because uh, there are better ways we can patrol the border without putting up a wall. Angel in Chicago, quick question for the congressman. Hi, yes. I was hoping to find out what he believes the percentages are that Trump will actually see jail time. Uh, Good question. So I think there's a growing percent that he won't finish the term, even though I think, you know, he's getting geared up to run for re-election. I think... You know, there is a lot of questions about uh, whether or not you can indict someone, right? You can't because uh, we have a possibility of impeachment. Will that happen? It depends. Will the Republicans start to see that this is a huge albatross around their neck? Uh, If they do in the Senate, then they might start acting. So there's a lot of things that have to happen. But I'm far lower on the jail time percent as I am on the perhaps leaving office by 2020. And uh, if he runs, I do not think he'll get reelected. Places like Wisconsin, some of his biggest drop-off of any state he won was in Wisconsin. Wisconsin and Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania know he's screwing up on trade. He doesn't actually understand it, not delivering what he promised. So I think we're rid of him no matter what in a couple of years. I would prefer much sooner, but I think we'll be in a good place for sure in two years. You know, President Ulysses S. Grant was arrested by a police officer in Washington, D.C. for speeding and taken to jail. He paid $20 to bail himself out. Could that be a precedent? <laughs> don't you wish? I, I don't know. You know. The other option is, don't forget, New York State is going to be doing a separate um, a, a, a process that could be, have something come out. But uh, yeah. more likely, he'll just leave and put his tail behind his, his legs and take off. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Congressman Pocan, thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, absolutely. Happy holidays to all your listeners. Too. Thank you. Back at you, and happy New Year in advance. We'll, you. We'll see well. you next Thank week. You. Thank you, sir. Uh, check out Congressman Pocan's website, by the way, pocan.house.gov. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey, Morris, what's on your mind today? I need just a little more Jesus to help me along the way. Okay. Hey, Professor, check this out. Okay. Uh, no man is as empty as when he is full of himself. I think I'm describing our U.S. president. But we might want to keep this in mind. Now, Donald Trump's got an audience of folks that are very much impressed with what he's doing. I'm talking about the high cabal. I mean, this guy's going to get the nominee for the Republican Party again, right? So, uh, you know, hold on to your hat. Uh, I'm also taking this systematic theology class, Professor, uh, with Dr. Stephon Brown here in Long Beach. Mm-hmm. And let me, let me share this with you. Christianity is made a mockery of the Ten Commandments, and it has sodomized the teachings and the principles of Jesus Christ. Now, all you got to do is read a book called uh, The Money Called by Chris Lehman, L-E-H-M-A-N-N, and another one called The American Syndrome. All right? You put those two together, and you'll see how we got to where we are. And if you racialize your narrative in this country, you know the word ethnic means heathen. If you racialize your narrative in this country, you can get a Christian to do damn near anything you want. So hmm. let's pray to the real Jesus that we get this thing right and turn it around and get some people with some spirit in them with love. Amen. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Morris. Very well said, and uh, and you sing well too. Thanks a lot, Morris. Great to hear from you today. The information about the First Step Act, by the way, that we were talking about, check it out. It'll be up on YouTube. It was fascinating how these billionaires and these big corporations got quote criminal justice reform through so that they can make themselves rich and keep themselves out of jail. It was pretty shocking. 
In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us, and that includes you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 